Amen. Well, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 3 this morning, continuing uh, a series here in Philippians on the theme of joy. Uh, nearly every passage we've looked at has uh, mentioned this, this theme, and uh, this passage is no exception. I don't know if you are familiar with Edward Hale's short story, uh, first published in the Atlantic in 1863, entitled The Man Without a Country. It's a story of an army lieutenant by the name of Philip Nolan, who renounces his country while under trial for treason. Matter of fact, during his testimony, he pronounced a bitter oath I wish I may never hear of the United States again. And the judge granted him his wish, (laughs) Uh, put him on a U.S. naval ship, and gave the order that he was never again to set foot on U.S. soil. And so he was passed from ship to ship, uh, never again setting foot on U.S. soil, and with the additional order that he was not to ever hear the name of the United States again, he was never to hear updates about what was happening back home, and so he was truly a man without a country. Uh, Philip Nolan got what he wanted, but I would suggest to you that uh, ultimately he wished he didn't. And that's part of the story, of course, is sort of feeling the gravity of that type of banishment, that type of rejection. There's a similar account in the scriptures regarding Cain, the son of Adam and Eve. You might remember that account from Genesis chapter 4. Cain killed his brother Abel, the first recorded murder in in, uh, human history, And God pronounced uh, significant judgment on Cain. He indicated to Cain that he would become an outsider, a restless wanderer on the earth. If he wanted to live independently of God's laws, he would live independent of God himself. And Cain, this hardened murderer, cried out for God's mercy. Realizing what that meant to be cut off from the very presence of God. A punishment that, in his own words, he could not bear. So this is a a serious concept to be banished, right? Certainly from a country, even more so being banished from God's presence. Here in Philippians 3, Paul touches on some similar themes Paul describes a group of individuals who had shown themselves to be enemies of the cross, the cross of Christ, enemies of God's kingdom. Their actions were treasonous. They chose to reject the authority of the king. And as in the case of Philip Nolan, the consequences were sobering and provide to us a cautionary tale. So Philippians 3, verse 17, let's look at how this portion of the letter begins. Philippians 3, 17, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. 
So Paul had just urged these believers in uh, the preceding verses, verses 12 through 16, to embrace a race mentality. Paul said twice there, he said, I'm pressing on. Uh, and at another point he says, uh, uh, forgetting what is behind and straining forward to what is ahead, I, I press on for the prize. Uh, so it's this, this wonderful race imagery. And Paul closes that section in verse 15 by saying, uh, all who are mature, all of you who really get it, who, who understand the true nature of the Christian life should embrace this mentality, this race mentality. You ought to be striving forward, pushing ahead uh, in your walk with Christ. And so now in verse 17, Paul again kind of reiterates this again. He pleads for them to imitate him in this regard, in embracing this kind of a race mentality. Now, uh, to our ears, when Paul says, imitate me, it seems a little bit arrogant, doesn't it? Uh, Follow my example, do what I do. We're we're a little hesitant to actually say that too often. Uh, Aren't we supposed to be emulating Jesus, right? Isn't he really the model that's out there in front of us? Well, make no mistake, Paul uh, urged the church to emulate Jesus, He gave a great section in the letter, uh, chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, pointing them to Christ. So uh, Paul certainly understands that Christ is the consummate example, and Paul is very much acquainted with his own sinfulness. Uh, But I think Paul understands the importance of real-time examples. They were not able to, these believers in Philippi, were not able to actually physically watch Jesus. And so Paul tells them to watch him. I'm, gonna wa- I'm walking in the way of Jesus. I'm walking in the path of the cross. And I'm asking you to emulate my example. And Paul, uh, again, he's not just making much of himself. I think Paul also knew that his days were numbered. So if you look there in verse 17, he not only calls on them to emulate him, but to look towards all of those who were walking according to his example. And he'd already identified Timothy and Epaphroditus and a couple of others here in the letter. So Paul doesn't have this, you know, Messiah complex that he thinks he's, you know, big stuff. He's just recognizing that people need concrete, real-time examples And uh, I think one of the implications, certainly for us, is that we ought to be following those in our own day who are walking in this path, who are walking the path of the cross. Who are those people that you've identified, right, that you are patterning your life after? We need examples. In sports, we talk uh, about coaching trees, like a family tree where you trace genealogy, right? For example, in the NFL uh, today, you can trace most all of the current coaches back to uh, Marty Schottenheimer and Mike Holmgren and Bill Parcells. These Hall of Fame coaches from the past have sort of uh, passed down their influence to today's coaches. So again, Paul's wanting to establish uh, a, a pattern 
that others can emulate down through the years. He wants these believers, he wants us to walk in, in, in line with this heritage that has been handed down to us. So he sets the stage again with this call to emulate him. But as we move into verse 18, we begin to see the reason why Paul is insisting on this. Why he's challenging the church to strive and not to settle, to embrace this race mentality. Let's pick up the text again here, uh, back in verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Here it is, verse 18. For or because many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears... Walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. There were many who were not imitating Paul's example, right? Many were walking as enemies of the cross of Christ. Now, what does Paul have in mind here? Who is he referring to? Who is he thinking about Uh, The context is going to help us as we move through these few verses. But I think we can begin to frame an understanding of who Paul is referring to. I'm going to suggest to you these are not unbelievers who have rejected the gospel or who identify as enemies of the cross. These are not people who are shaking their fist at God, who are cursing God, These are not people who have declared themselves to be enemies of the cross. These are individuals who walk as enemies of the cross. I would also suggest to you that Paul is not referring to the Judaizers that he criticized earlier. The Judaizers were observant Jewish people who were uh, making additional Uh, demands, uh, adding additional requirements to the gospel. So the Judaizers were saying, yes, you believe in Jesus, but you also must be circumcised, and you must obey the dietary laws, and you must do all of these things prescribed in the law of Moses. They were adding to the gospel. And in, in a very real sense, they were distorting the gospel. They were perverting the gospel. Instead of being a gospel of God's free grace, it had become a gospel of human merit. <laughs> and so Paul confronts this in, earlier in chapter 3 in no uncertain terms. So Paul's not talking about the Judaizers here. Matter of fact, he's on the opposite end of the spectrum. Now he's talking about people who had completely disregarded God's laws threw off all restraint, and were living a godless lifestyle. So Paul's not talking about blatant unbelievers. He's not talking about the Judaizers, the legalists. I believe Paul is describing professing believers who were living their lives in direct contradiction to the pattern of the gospel. What might be called, in our contemporary jargon, nominal Christians, or Christians in name only, Christians who made certain claims about following Jesus, but their lives told a different story. Their actions betrayed them. Their actions actually show them to be God's enemies and traitors 
to God's kingdom. Paul doesn't identify the individuals overtly, but I'm just suggesting to you we ought to read this text with sobriety to make sure that we don't fall under this designation as those who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. So Paul earlier in chapter 3 had addressed legalism. All right, This was the Judaizers again. Legalism being any attempt to merit acceptance with God through moral effort. Legalism says good works are necessary for salvation. So Paul really hit that hard. Okay, um, He didn't mince any words about that. He had some choice names for those Judaizers okay, at the beginning of chapter 3. But now he's confronting license. He's confronting a different error. And that is any attempt to use God's grace as a license or excuse to go on sinning. License says good works don't matter. It doesn't matter how I live. I'm saved by grace. I can do whatever I want to do. Right? That too is a distortion, a perversion of the gospel. Right? So I, Paul's trying to address both of these dynamics. But in this particular context here, in verses 17 through 21, he's dealing with this issue of license. Right? So this is, a pretty big, this is a pretty big statement here, though, isn't it? That Paul says, he says, there are many who live or walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. How do we recognize these, these enemies? Let's look a little closer at this. Um, how do we distinguish the enemies of the cross from the allies of the cross? And Paul here in verses 19 through 21 does just that. He talks about the characteristics of the enemies of the cross, but then he frames that by talking about the characteristics of the allies of the cross. So it's this beautiful, really compact little section here in verses 19 through 21. Let's, let's read that together. We'll actually pick up in, in verse 18. For many of us, of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Here's the pivot in verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So Paul contrasts, helps us to distinguish the enemies of the cross from the allies of the cross. And he does so in a, in a very typical uh, sort of Jewish way. He uses what's called a chiasm. You know, we use bold print or we highlight, like I've even done today on my graphic, right? Different colors, or we might do Roman numeral one, point A. And, you know, we have all these ways of distinguishing. But in, in generally, in, in biblical writing, 
um, th- there's no bold print. There's, there's, no, uh, there's literary techniques that help to sort of focus the text. And one of those that's very common in the scriptures is chiasm. Uh, you might think of it like an arrow. Uh, so uh, the, the, the air, I have to see which way your arrow, the, the, this, the, this graphic kind of gives you a little bit of a sense of that. But, but yeah, an, an arrow that the author kind of makes his way and then sort of retraces his steps a little bit. So there's sort of some symmetry and some balance in a chiasm. There's a lot of parallel statements. But what you also have is a point kind of a focal point in the text. So uh, I'm going to suggest that that's what we have here in verses 19 through 21. And Paul lays out a series of contrasts uh, between the enemies of the cross and the allies of the cross, helping us to kind of distinguish the two. Uh, So I want to note three uh, of these contrasts that are here in the text. And we're going to kind of come back to this little graphic as we move through just to help you orient. Uh, but the first here is destination. This is the first thing that Paul contrasts between the enemies of the cross and the allies of the cross. Destination. Uh, he says very starkly that those who walk as enemies of the cross will come to destruction. Will come to destruction. And the word here is... Um, is a strong one that speaks of eternal judgment. It doesn't mean that they will receive a slap on the hand or they'll you know, receive some type of, of uh, minor punishment or discipline. It's a really strong word for destruction. Uh, Paul uh, had already used this word earlier in the letter in chapter 1 with exactly that meaning of Eternal judgment. So there's a heaviness here. Uh, These individuals, if we just say it bluntly, were bound for hell. They were subject to an eternity separated from God. Notice Paul's emotion uh, back in in verse 18. He says, "I, I say this with tears. Right? I mean, Paul is deeply moved Uh, as he thinks about this, because it's such a serious matter. The consequences were so great. Those who have chosen this path to live as enemies of the cross show that they are estranged from God, that they stand under his righteous judgment because of their sin. A tree is known by its fruit, Jesus said. And Paul is saying something similar, that their actions, they've, they've shown themselves to be traitorous, to be untrue, not just to be neutral, but to actually be enemies, living as enemies of the cross. They stand outside the saving grace of the gospel. Their path leads to a devastating end. By the way, my friends, we, we need to talk about hell more. It's not very fashionable. It's not politically correct. But I think Paul does something really helpful here in terms of how he talks about it. And we never should talk about hell without tears in our eyes. 
This is not something that we talk about smugly, that we want to talk about, that we want to, you know, kind of beat somebody over the head with it. We're simply recognizing that God is holy. Our sin separates us from God. That's a big problem. We are all separated from God in our natural condition because of our sin. So whenever we speak of hell, it ought to be with tears in our eyes. So Paul speaks here, not out of spite, but out of compassion and true concern. And I think part of what makes this so convicting is that these individuals seem to be self-deceived. Again, they were not speaking as enemies of the cross. They were not declaring themselves to be enemies of the cross. Likely, it was just the opposite. They were declaring themselves to be allies of the cross. But they were walking as enemies of the cross. So Paul is sort of wanting to expose this self-deception and divert them from a path of destruction. So the enemies of the cross. Again, 19 verse A. That's kind of how this section starts as Paul talks about their destruction. There we go. So your top, your top bar, the little orange bar there, right? Their end is destruction. And then how he ends it here at the end, he talks about those who are allies of the cross... It talks about how their lowly body will be transformed uh, after the pattern of Christ's resurrection body. So he paints a really beautiful hope for those who are allies of the cross. Again, you see the contrast there. Allies of the cross will find their bodies transformed. A reference to the coming resurrection of the dead. The present body is described here as lowly, a description calling attention to its weakness and susceptibility to persecution, to disease, to sinful appetites, to death. But our bodies will not only be raised back to life, but transformed. And this will all take place after the pattern of Jesus. Uh, it's really kind of a fun exercise to think about what eternity is going to be like, what the resurrection of the dead is going to look like. And uh, we get a clue here. It looks a lot like Jesus' resurrection body, his resurrection reality. So what does that mean? That means our bodies will be recognizable, right? Now, now the disciples were a bit incredulous related to uh, the resurrection, but they were able to recognize Jesus. And there was continuity there, even for Jesus, wasn't there? There was the, 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 the wounds in his hands and in his side and in his feet. Uh, they were able to recognize him. It wasn't that Jesus just uh, received a new body, uh, a, a new model. Sometimes we'd like a new model, wouldn't we? But the, the, the beauty of the resurrection is that it's our same body that is raised and we're able to be recognized. We will know one another. All right, that, that's an important aspect of the resurrection. Uh, again, after the pattern of Jesus, our bodies will be physical. I don't know if you think about it, but Jesus went to great lengths to uh, 
eat with his disciples after the resurrection on multiple occasions. And I think part of that was to continue to reinforce the reality of the resurrection. It wasn't just an inspirational story. It was real. Jesus' body actually came back from the dead. And we don't think about it often, but Jesus still has his physical body today. Humanity is represented in heaven right now. Right? Jesus has bound himself. The second person of the Godhead has, has tied himself to humanity. Our bodies, our resurrected bodies, will be physical. Our bodies will be glorious, for lack of a better term. Okay? Uh, Jesus was able to eat. It was a physical body. Uh, but he was also able to do some things that weren't quite normal, right? He's walking through walls. I don't know how much of that we're going to be able to do. My point in all that is just that our bodies will no longer be subject to death. So the resurrection of Jesus, his resurrection body, is different even than Lazarus's resurrection, is it not? Lazarus was raised from the dead, but he would die again. Jesus' resurrection is a transformation into a glorious body that is no longer subject to death. So Paul's painting this picture. This is the end. This is the destination for the allies of the cross, for those who have been joined to Christ. This is the great prize awaiting the believer. So the enemies of the cross will experience destruction. The friends of the cross will experience everlasting life. Enemies of the cross are living large. They're pursuing their pleasures. They're advancing their own agendas. But it will come to destruction. Friends of the cross suffer uh, for the sake of the gospel are often rejected, misunderstood, misrepresented by a secular culture, have a bit of a hard go, but the end will be life, abundant life, a resurrection after the pattern of Christ. So I ask you, where is your path taking you? This is one of the, one of the, the contrasts that Paul creates here about destination. Where is your path taking you? Proverbs 4 reminds us to ponder the path of your feet. Look at where you're going, what path you're on, and see where it leads. So Paul puts this out here as one of the contrasts here. He also talks about orientation. Uh, Orientation. Specifically, moral orientation. Right? And notice again how this is contrasted. Now we're looking at these two blue lines okay, in the chiasm. Uh, he says regarding the enemies of the cross that their God is their belly and they glory in their shame. Right? That's his description for them in the middle of verse 19. They are driven by their appetites. They simply do whatever they feel like doing. Uh, As Jude says, like wild animals. You know, not with any rational reasoning process, but just driven by instinct. Wild beasts, right? 
And notice that Paul describes it in terms of worship. Their God is their belly. They worship their appetites. They worship the, the creature rather than the creator. Stated simply, they worship themselves. We live in a culture where many, even many who profess the name of Christ, do not want to be confined to God's standards. They do not want to submit to his sexual ethics. They don't want to submit to uh, his prescriptions regarding work and rest for his patterns related to marriage. Essentially, they want a God of their own making. Essentially, they want to worship themselves. Paul goes on to say that they glory in their shame. I think here he is describing that they are hardened in their lifestyle. They glory in their shame. They take pride in the things that they ought to be ashamed of. Instead of saying or doing these things in the shadows, they flaunt their godless lifestyle. So this is their their decision-making framework. They have no moral compass. They're not interested in pleasing God, but merely in pleasing themselves, and they are hardened in their rebellion, completely desensitized to their sin. Uh, My friends, this is a scary place to be. Uh, God's word is sharp. It's a two-edged sword that pierces and divides even the the bone from the marrow. It penetrates to the deepest aspects of our being. It exposes our our sin. God's Spirit is at work to confront us and convict us of sin. And we are all hardwired with a conscience, a general sense of right and wrong. But it is possible to resist God's word, to quench God's spirit, and to develop a seared conscience where I no longer am troubled because I've stuffed the conviction for so long and that it no longer bothers me. <laughs> and Romans 1 tells us that there comes a point where God removes restraint and gives us over to our sin. That is a scary place to be, but it's what Paul is describing here for these individuals. They have become hardened in their godless lifestyle, and they walk as enemies of the cross. In contrast, the allies of the cross await a Savior the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, you see the parallel here in the text, in the chiasm. The enemies, God is their belly, they glory in their shame. The allies of the cross are awaiting a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is their orientation. This is their moral compass. And again, not not just looking to Jesus, but looking toward the return of Jesus. Right? They're awaiting a Savior. They're awaiting Jesus' return. And when He returns, it will be in power and glory. 
They recognize Jesus as not only Savior, but Lord or Master. They're oriented around the return of Christ. This dominates their attention. All their moral choices are framed by this perspective. They know that when he returns, it will be with power and glory. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. And on that day, all will give an account for the deeds done in the body, whether good or bad. So true believers do not worship their appetites. Instead, they worship Jesus as Savior and Lord. And this framework, this lens, does much to protect us from earthly and sensual entanglements. It shapes our moral choices. So I ask you, what do your moral choices reveal about your true loyalties? Your sexual ethics, your entertainment selections, your music consumption. What do all of these aspects of your life reveal about who you're worshiping? Are you worshiping God? Are you submitting to Jesus as Lord? Or are you worshiping yourself? This too is a contrast between these two groups, the enemies of the cross and the allies of the cross. Finally, identity. Identity. And I think this really gets to the core of the issue. I said with achaism, there's usually, it's a way of of grammatically pointing towards a point. And I think this is kind of the center of the chiasm and really the heart of the issue is our identity. Notice the enemies of the cross have their minds set on earthly things. The end of verse 19. Their whole attention is fixed on the physical and material interests. They're simply living in the moment, for the moment, with no thought for eternity They're wrapped up in all the things that the culture values without any thought to what God values. They come to think of themselves uh, not primarily in terms of their relationship with God, but in terms of their relationship with the surrounding culture. And I think uh, this is certainly something we need to be aware of. I've, I've sounded the, uh, the warning over uh, the last few months about the dangers of tribalism in the church, among the people of God, where we have these little pet uh, commitments and priorities and allegiances. And if we're not careful, these things can actually become uh, more part of our core identity than our very relationship with Christ. I say it this way, sometimes we're better Americans than we are Christians. Sometimes it becomes clear that that's really our core identity. Again, if you're an American citizen, then we're, we're trained to fight for our rights. This is like part of our DNA. But it's not part of the DNA of a follower of Christ. <laughs> 
We are called to surrender our rights. This is what Paul lays out in chapter 2, verses 5 to 11, the pattern of Christ, who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, to be clung to, but was willing to humble himself. So which is it? What's, what's the driving identity? Are you an American or are you a Christian? The two don't have to be mutually exclusive, but one has to trump the other. What's driving the, the cart here? So the, the enemies of the cross uh, are, are thinking about earthly things. They're, they're, they're the allies of the cross, in contrast, see their primary identity as citizens of God's heavenly kingdom. Again, because Philippi was a Roman colony, these believers were Roman citizens. Philippi was not in Italy. Philippi was in Greece, Macedonia. But Philippi was Roman soil. It was Italian soil. It was an outpost of Rome. And I think Paul uses this citizenship terminology very very purposefully. They understood citizenship because of their unique status as Roman citizens, as a Roman colony. And Paul wants them to understand that they are, as believers in Jesus Christ, are God's colony. They are are God's embassy in the world. When we gather as a church, we're Switzerland. We're, We're something more than just an American entity. We gather as God's kingdom people, as God's embassy in the world. Paul's driving home this sense of core identity. I think this is really the issue here. This is the heart of the issue, the the center of the chiasm. How do you understand your core identity? A lot of conversation, a lot of confusion about identity in our culture. This is a major issue, right? And a lot of people are finding identity or trying to define identity in regards to gender and sexual orientation. But our identity is rooted in something much deeper. We don't define our identity. It is granted to us. We've been created in the image of God. We have been redeemed out of slavery, adopted into God's family, and made citizens in God's kingdom. So Paul wants them to to recognize the core contrast between the enemies of the cross and the allies of the cross, and that is a contrast in identity. What is your core identity? It doesn't mean you have to renounce the fact that you're an American citizen or that you like Harley Davidson motorcycles or, you know, whatever. I mean, we have all of these other little, little things, right? That's okay. Uh, we have varying convictions and interests, and, but what is your core identity? What's, what's driving the ship, <laughs> I want you to look at one more verse into chapter 4 where Paul kind of draws this together with a specific charge. 
an action step. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Therefore, right, in light of what I just said, in light of this great contrast between the enemies of the cross and the allies of the cross, stand firm. Stand firm in the Lord. Like a soldier who refuses to break rank or get out of formation, holding his ground in battle. Stand firm. Actually, he even says there to stand firm thus, or some translations say stand firm in this way. According to the pattern I've just described, right? Having a, having a clear sense of your citizenship. Having a, a clear moral compass and, and looking towards the Lord's return. Having a clear sense of, of, of the resurrection of the dead and what awaits you. The great hope of the follower of Christ. Uh, stand firm in, in, in all of this. <laughs> Paul doesn't want these believers to be derailed in their faith, to lose sight of their true identity, to walk as enemies of the cross. He urges them to walk the talk, to make sure that their behavior and their lifestyle corresponds to their claims and their declarations. Philip Nolan uh, was found to be a traitor to his country. His actions betrayed his true identity. And he received the just punishment for his treachery. He was banished from his country. May that never be true of us. That we are shown to be traitors. That regardless of our profession... We are identified as enemies, those who walk as enemies of the cross. May it never be said of us. My brothers and sisters, stand firm in the Lord. Stand firm in the Lord.